Imagine going to work and playing with toys, or better yet, collecting them. Well, Chris is the Vice President for Collections and Chief Curator at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester. And it is it is a terrific museum, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But well, he started in 1989 when he went there being responsible for furniture and cookware, record albums, televisions, Big Mac boxes, and Halloween costumes. Now there's a roster, and I've got questions. So, Chris, welcome to WGN Radio. Thanks, Raleigh. All right, so cookware. Let's talk a moment. When I saw this, and I have very, very few cooking skills. I made a deal with the fire department. I don't cook. They don't come. But in the times I've tried it, one of the things over the years I loved was my Pyrex collection, which actually dated back to the 1930s. But when I moved to Canada, I, I, I didn't take it. You know, you can only load up one semi before they really don't want to let you in the country. And so the Pyrex had to go. And I thought, well, this is no big deal. I'll just buy new stuff. Well, I did. And what I discovered was the joy of the exploding Pyrex. And, I mean, and you know, little slivers of glass and little slivers of rice, they look the same when they're, you know, covered in mushroom sauce on your drapes. And this is a problem. So since you're the curator of this stuff, they swear they didn't do anything different. What happened? You know, I've had that same question, and I got items from the Corning Company, original makers of Pyrex, that they kept in their sort of back room in case of liability issues like that. Mm -hmm. And they had maintained this backlog of vintage Pyrex and finally gave a bunch of it to the Strong Museum. So I know precisely what you're talking about. And and they they will not cop to it. And like you, I'm looking for the old stuff. Now, of course, you're the museum. Probably you have a budget, but not only that, you've got some clout. Gee, it gets to be at the museum. Uh, I'm the eBay buyer. And so here I am going around the world looking for, you know, the, the Pyrex double boiler, which I found, incidentally. But my, uh, yeah, my nesting set of three wonderful bowls, which lasted me for decades, uh, that seems to be gone forever. And the new stuff does explode. I don't care what they say. I have firsthand experience. Experience. <laughs> I, I didn't have firsthand experience, although I did pour cold liquid oh. into a hot Pyrex <laughs> item coming out of the oven, no. and uh, let's say I had to eat something else for dinner that night. Yeah, they, they tell you not to do that, though. They warn you about, about that one, but they, they don't warn you that what you're buying in the stores now is somehow different. Now, the next uh, order of business, of course, we could talk about aluminum cookware and be laughing for hours, but uh, who the hell invented Bakelite? <laughs> but it was it was plastic before plastic was common. <laughs> it sure that was. was. And it had heft to it in a way that modern plastics don't. Right, right. It was not. Uh, it was not portable. It was luggable, uh, and <laughs> all this did not inure, as far as far as I was concerned, to its benefit. But boy, Bakelite was just huge, and I was not around. I hope when it debuted. But when did that first come on the scene? That was in the twenties, I believe, or that's when I associate it becoming bangle bracelets and things like that, as well as the great colorful uh, portable with, in quotes, radios of the 1930s in vivid colors that people had never seen before. Yeah, guaranteed to clash with your kitchen, but that's where everybody put them nonetheless. That's right. 
Yeah, that's it's a fascinating time when you realize how, in the scheme of things, recent that was, but how ancient that seems. Which brings us to record albums. And until 1950, we're mostly talking shellac. We're talking 78s. So when you, in 1989, got there, what were you collecting for records? It was everything under the sun. So records... We had a huge collection of 78s, which might as well have been made of Bakelite. They were so heavy individually. Uh, but also pop music from the 50s, 60s into uh, the punk albums of the 80s that I grew up on and felt needed to be part of uh, a popular culture collection. Oh, no, this, this is great, because my, uh, my heart is obscure soul and obscure R&B, and even some of the record labels are just tremendous. In some cases, the record label put out all of one record. So is this the kind of thing where maybe one day the Strong Museum will be able to house a repository of my obscure soul that only me and four people bought copies of? <laughs> we would love the opportunity to consider that. That is, we always love that chance to hear from collectors, hear from experts in particular niches, and find out what they know and see what might support our mission to represent play in America. Wow. Wow. Now I know who to donate my record collection to since nobody else will want it when I go. But And it's amazing how much is out there. And really, we're talking about it. You would probably be the only place that would be a repository of this. There isn't any other organization that does this, is there? Well, there's always the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There are Motown Museum. So, yeah, there are places that do, but uh, we do it with a different twist. Well, yeah, twist, no pun intended. But I'm glad that uh, that you do it because, yes, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame would not represent one iota of this. And the Motown Museum, well, I got a lot of Motown, um, you know, Detroit labels that would have nothing to do with Motown that I'd love to see you uh, uh, collect. So, yeah, this, this, is, this is great. But the Strong has a history predating uh, rock and roll and probably Bakelite in terms of that. Tell me a little about the history. Well, we're actually pretty new. The museum was only seven years old when I joined it in 1989. But it had been the brainchild of our founder, a woman named Margaret Strong, who had the good insight to be born to wealthy parents, something (laughs) I recommend highly if you can achieve it. Yeah, me too. And she was the only child of these parents. Her father's family was in buggy whips, which was a great business to be getting out of about 1900 when Margaret Strong was born. Her mother's family was in milling. They lived in Rochester, New York, and they met this guy named George Eastman who said, you know, would you like to buy some stock in my new photo company? (laughs) And they did that. And they never sold their Kodak stock. They just let the dividends accrue. And by the time she died in 1969, our founder, Margaret Strong, was the largest single stockholder in Eastman Kodak. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. A good move in that era, um, probably less savvy in the years since then, but that gave her the background, the backing, the financial assets to become a world-class collector of everything from doorknobs to cookware to especially her dearest loves, toys, dolls, and games. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm thinking... 
In that Kodak, of course, their most famous blunder was uh, telling Evan Land that, you know, Polaroid's not going to work. <laughs> so I got asked, does the Strong Museum actually have some early Polaroids? We have a few, but we are fortunate that just down the street from us is the Eastman Museum that is the world's best photographic museum. So we don't have to do that. We collaborate with them down the street. We collect the toys and share those with them. They collect the cameras and paraphernalia and share that with us. Now, when when you go to their museum, do they have a section that says, here's where Kodak really missed the boat and then presents the Polaroid? Or how does that work? Well, they do that. They also do uh, the Kodak had the patents on key details for digital photography and didn't realize what they had or how fast the world would turn away from their cash cow regular film. Oh, isn't that the truth? And I think that's probably the story of any well-heeled established company, that they uh, they don't really think they have to embrace the nuances of the stuff that comes up round next. And most of the time, they're probably right. But in those instances where it's uh, digital photography or, or Polaroids, it, it's, it's pretty stellar. We're talking with Chris Bench. He is vice president of collections and chief curator of the Strong National Museum at Play. And at Raleigh.net, I've got a link right to the museum, and you should absolutely check it out. But we are going to a walk down memory lane to your childhood, no doubt, because as you can guess, there is a Hall of Fame. Oh, yes. And there were 2020 inductees, too. Maybe one of your favorites is among them. We'll get to that on WGN Radio. We are talking toys and collectibles of all stripes with Chris Bench. He's vice president for collections and chief curator of the Strong National Museum of Play. And it has a Hall of Fame. So, Chris, what was the first year for Hall of Fame inductees? It was 1998, and we can't claim credit for that. It actually happened at a little museum in Salem, Oregon, A.C. Gilbert's Discovery Village. And maybe, does A.C. Gilbert sound familiar to you, Raleigh? No. Well, uh, maybe you missed out on an A.C. Gilbert erector set or chemistry set. (laughs) Those were classic toys, and it's not uh, exactly uh, improper, but the erector set got into the Hall of Fame very early on. Well, and rightfully so. No, no, things like chemistry sets and stuff, no, they were not allowing me near those things. And, and God knows I, I wanted to, but uh, after I accidentally burned down a room trying to install my own uh, own dimmer switch, uh, they, they kept me away from anything that could be electronic for a while, uh, but certainly aware of them nonetheless. So the erector set is the perfect thing to start with, of course. And uh, the chemistry set could be argued that, you know, if you hate your friends, give their kid a chemistry set. Set, same, same, same like an ant farm, works very well. But other, other than those uh, potentially, well, definitely educational, but potentially destructive items, what else was on the first list? Uh, it was classics like marbles, Crayola crayons, Play-Doh, Monopoly, Etch-A-Sketch, Frisbee, of course, Barbie and the Teddy Bear, and uh, 
Lego and Tinker Toys all made it in the first year, 1998. And, you know, all of them make make a lot of sense. And uh, uh, Play-Doh, my God, how many kids have eaten Play-Doh and lived to tell about it? And all the other things that that come with that. Etch-a-Sketch is fascinating to me because I did know people who could literally sit there and kind of create a galloping horse. I could barely write my name. Why did that toy take off? It was something that was challenging, as you point out, to say the least. If you can write your name, you're better than I am at it. (laughs) I can barely draw a diagonal line. But it, it was unlike any toy that had preceded it, and it looked perfect for 1960, the year it came out. It was basically a TV screen with the two knobs at the lower left and right corners that controlled your stylus to make the line. It was what every kid wanted that year. And I was told by the folks at Ohio Art, the folks who made Etch-A-Sketch, that they kept the production line running right up until midnight on Christmas Eve in 1960 to crank out enough Etch-A-Sketches to satisfy the demand. You know, I believe it, and we were talking about Bakelite before. It was in that horrible orangey-red color as well. So it was it was not only looking like a television, but it was wonderfully garish in red and white. So <laughs> it just had everything going for it in 1960. The only thing it didn't look was Danish modern. All right, so, so we have the, uh, have the Barbie doll, of course, and I assume 1960, it was probably not that long before it that the Barbie doll emerged. She was a 1959 product, so yes, you have nailed her era, and she really revolutionized the doll world with her look, with her accessories, and by accessories, I mean everything from horses and cars and houses to the ultimate accessory, of course, Kent. Right. <laughs> and, of course, that came one by one as, t- as time went on. But uh, Barbie was interesting when, when she first came out in her little box with her black and white swimsuit and all that, because heretofore we were thinking about uh, dolls being the kind of things that uh, little kids uh, held and tried to feed and were lucky if they pulled a, spring, a string and it said mama or something. Uh, Barbie was the antithesis of dolls to that point. Was there anything like Barbie before Barbie? There were there had been fashion dolls, but they had never taken off the way that Barbie did. And Barbie was actually based on a cartoon in a German men's magazine. I believe it. Uh, the same era as the Playboy Bunny was first drawn, and that explains a lot about her dimensions. <laughs> and it was a doll version of that cartoon character who was a gold digger that Ruth Handler, one of the founders of Mattel, saw on a family trip to Europe, knew that it was the kind of aspirational grown-up doll that her daughter daughter, coincidentally named Barbara, had always wanted, and she basically ripped off that design, brought it to America, and made every girl in the North American continent and then around the world want one. Oh, and I have a lot of questions about this. This is a sociological study that might be very disturbing. We'll pick it up right there. We'll take your questions, too, especially if it relates to your childhood and what you played with. Keep it clean. 888-876-5593 is 8888. Raleigh, I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James, and we're talking with Chris Bench. He's the Vice President for Collections and Chief Curator at the Strong National Museum of Play that, of course, Peter, Paul, and Mary 
I'm sorry, but it was a toy song. 1969 on Warner Brothers. Actually, Tom Paxton wrote it, and it was on his 1968 album, Something to Sing About. So uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary the next year put it on Peter, Paul, and Mommy. Hopefully you don't have it on your collection. 888-876-5593, Raleigh. Uh, Chris just informed me that the Barbie doll actually was based on, well, a, a German sex toy to speak of and uh, not exactly but uh, but lily was pretty darn close and while i am uh, getting over that shock we'll go to elizabeth in riverside welcome to wgn radio thank you for taking my call raleigh Glad you did. um i was going to say there was a wonderful place called dispenses castle of toys i don't know if you ever heard of it no it used oh it sold everything everything but I also wanted to say that when I was a young girl, I worked for F.W. Woolworth, mm-hmm. and I ordered the records that were coming in. Oh, wow. I have 278, well, I had 278 by Hoagie Carmichael singing Stardust, his song, and Old Buttermilk Sky. Well, that's great. And when I was moving, I didn't want to take them with because I was afraid they'd break, so I had one meter and and uh, Mitch Miller, I had, I had every record available. I took them over to a, a store called Valhalla. Uh huh. Unfortunately, she closed down. Oh. Yeah. Well, but she got the ball. Now, when you were when you were buying records for Woolworth, was that Woolworth that actually did it, or was it a rack jobber who had the space? No, I actually ordered them. Yeah, I know. From a- but for Woolworth, for Woolworth Company itself, not for a rack No, no, for a store. I worked up in the office of the store. I went around and collected the money from the cash registers. And one of my jobs, besides that, was to order the records. So they did it in-house. Interesting. Oh, yeah. And I even put some Andre Castellanets in there. Well, there you go. All right, Elizabeth. Good memories. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. So, and Chris, I bet you hear from people every day with memories that are truly precious to them of things they think no longer existed in any form. But I bet you that uh, the Strong National Museum probably has it, whatever it is. We have lots of it, but it's amazing what also comes out of the woodwork that we never knew about and never knew that we needed. And we're so thrilled when those opportunities occur. Now, did uh, did uh, Ruth Handler get sued for ripping off Lily? There were some court cases, yes. <laughs> right. And if your listeners ever have felt that Barbie is not a good role model, remember that her predecessor, Bill Lily, came with a black negligee, a blindfold, and a trapeze. So <laughs> she makes Barbie look pure as the driven snow. Yeah, as long as you got an 18-inch waistline. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> but what's interesting to me is when I had read about Ruth, I remember she did talk about her daughter, how she wanted something for her daughter, and I thought, what is wrong with this child? But then I realized the child was a little bit older, and uh, she figured, well, too old to play with traditional dolls, so uh, she'll, she'll play with Barbie. Uh, now, uh, how hard a sell was that originally? Because, you know, obviously Ruth didn't come back and said, I'm ripping off a sex toy. Uh, she came up with this and probably had to take it around. Of course, she and her husband formed Mattel, but still have to get shelf space. How hard was it to sell to retailers and such that this is going to work? 
You know, Ruth was a very savvy marketer, and one of the brilliant things she did was she bought up all the advertising time on the Mickey Mouse Club show, and that was 100% Mattel. She basically had a giant megaphone and the biggest ladder to stand on to shout to every kid in the country, and Mattel toys moved like nobody's business because of that advertising direct to their kid consumers. Which makes all the sense in the world, but I'm still back to build Lily here for a minute, and thinking, <laughs> thinking about the, you know, the, the Walt Disney mentality and uh, the Mickey Mouse Club, and thinking, they must not have understood that build Lily was the predecessor. They didn't, and Barbie was not a gold digger like Lily was, although you might debate that. She was a teenage fashion model initially. That was her definition. That's why she had those looks, and it was a time of nose cone brassiers on more than just uh, sex kittens. Has there ever been, and I know there have been in other toys, but among dolls, has there ever been a phenomenon like Barbie since Barbie? Definitely Bratz gave Barbie a big run for their money in more recent years, and they hit a different demographic. They definitely blew the lid off of the doll business in a way that Barbie hadn't in a long time, made her look kind of stuffy and staid when they were much more hip and happening. Oh, man, i got to hear about this. I miss Bratz entirely. 888-876-5593 is 8888 Raleigh on WGN Radio. WGN to most, it's just another sidewalk or parking lot. But to Robert R. Andreas and Sons, it's a work of art, perfectly paved with attention to detail. Andreas and Sons, a family-owned Chicagoland business with the experience to handle any job. Patios, stairs, foundations, driveways, loading docks, warehouse floors. Andreas and Sons does it all. Commercial, industrial, or residential. If your project requires concrete or asphalt, then you need to contact the experts. Andreas and Sons. For a free estimate, call 708-863-5735. That's 708-863-5735. Or just visit andreasconstruction.com. Robert R. Andreas and Sons, general contractors specializing in high-quality professional concrete and asphalt solutions since 1956. Call 708-863-5735. That's 708-863-5735. Or visit andreasconstruction.com. At Rosecrans, our mission has remained the same since 1916, to save and change lives. Lives of those who struggle with mental health and addiction. Maybe your loved one. Maybe you. We're the most trusted name in treatment, and we've helped more people find lasting recovery than anywhere else in the Midwest. We've been right here in the community for more than a century, and we're ready to help you. Visit Rosecrans.org. Life's waiting. Have you been back to Burlington lately? Your store is now restocked, so hurry in for more unbelievable deals on amazing brands and styles at up to 60% off other retailers' prices every day. 
Stop back in to see the fabulous values you've come to love with more arriving all the time. Whether it's back to school, work, or just back, head back into your Burlington today and start getting more value for less again. Burlington, love the deals. Hi folks, Orion here again. Are you thinking about a new Subaru? If so, Gary Lang Subaru is the dealership you can depend on. Right now, experience their touchless car buying program at GaryLangSubaru.com. Simply choose your favorite Subaru from their vast inventory, Legacy, Impreza, Forester, Outback, Crosstrek, or Ascent. Select your financing or lease option, get an instant trade offer, even add accessories, and your car will be delivered right to your door. Take it from me, there's no other Subaru dealership I would trust for my new Subaru. Visit Gary Lang Subaru just minutes from anywhere on Route 31 between McHenry and Crystal Lake or complete your entire purchase online at GaryLangSubaru.com. You can't afford to buy or lease a new Subaru anywhere else. And remember, if it doesn't say Gary Lang on the back, you probably paid too much. I know, hard to believe, but that is on a BJ subsidiary. That was on Tolly in 1964. Well, so are the early Beatles releases, so what can you say? Uh, the label shut down in 1965, not because of the Klinger sisters. They actually were mainstays on variety television in the 60s, and uh, the family group, uh, either from Detroit or Utah, depending on which bio you read, Yes, uh, either fundamental Christians or uh, or Mormons, or could be one and the same. But it's it's funny how you get both of the bios when you start to look them up. But their first LP was with uh, Danny Kay, and they do have some hilarious things. Not sure they meant them to be, but uh, shoop shoop de doop ramalama ding dong yeah 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 on Rick. Yes, a Detroit obscure label is uh, something that you might want to check out, or, or not. We are talking about about toys, from the very commonplace to, well, obviously, Bratz is very commonplace, and I just missed it. Uh, Chris Bench didn't, because he's vice president for collection and chief curator of the Strong National Museum of Play. And uh, so I looked up Bratz, uh, did, did my due diligence there in the moment, and uh, uh, yes, this apparently was a huge thing. Now, what I found interesting was that they discontinued it momentarily in 2016 and then brought it back? They were dealing with some court cases at the time, but they have kept going and they have kept giving Barbie a run for her money over the years. 
Now, now, Brett, unlike Barbie, who is allegedly one doll with many costumes, uh, is Yasmin and Chloe and Jane and Sasha originally in 2001. But since then, have there been other brats? There have been oodles of brats, oh. and there are boy brats and brats. If Barbie is an unrealistic body image, brats have their own issues with their pipe cleaner size arms and legs and their giant heads with anime style eyes and puffy lips. Um, they are, uh, some people have given them credit for starting the sort of slutification of girls toys in the 2000s and they, uh, they've got their own reputation issues to handle. So they'd kind of be like trailer trash Barbie. Uh, a little bit, only very pan-ethnic and much more diverse than Barbie and her friends ever were. Well, they're certainly diverse. I, I read that you can't take off their shoes. You have to remove the whole foot. So <laughs> right there, I'm uh, glad they're not anatomically correct. And, uh, yeah, the, the pipe cleaner legs are certainly, uh, certainly a unique feature there. But clearly, uh, we can laugh all we want about this. This has been big money for these people because there were movies. How did they convince anyone to make a movie? They, as Mattel did for things like Masters of the Universe, uh, they funded their own movies, and it was that whole sort of multimedia and feed on the whole ecosystem of toys, movies, TV, accessories. It goes on and on. Yeah, I was, I was reading people ask questions, you know, of course, on search engines, it's always funny what people write, period. But uh, the one is, is Jade Chinese? And the answer was, she's half Chinese. And thought, wait a minute, these people come with, these dolls come with a story? Her mother's from China, her dad is from England? What, do you get a book with these? It, it, way more backstory than Barbie came with. Yeah. Yes, it, it just builds into that. And if there's movie versions, they've got to have some history to go along with uh, where they got to today. I assume you have a full Bratz collection at the Strong Museum. We have some, definitely not as many as Barbie. Uh, in, a few years ago, we acquired the entire contents of a Barbie museum in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. So we are definitely pumped on our Barbie collection. Oh, you are the Barbie capital of the world right there. All right. So Chris Bench, Vice President for Collections and Chief Curator at the Strong National Museum of Play. Yeah, I'll get to a few of my favorite stuff. And then we got to, got to get to board games, because I'm sure the state of Utah single-handedly keeps board games alive. I'll explain why. I'm Raleigh James, and it's WGN Radio. WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James, and we'll forego the bumper since we only have about four minutes left, and I don't want to waste them. We're talking with Chris Bench, Vice President for Collections and Chief Curator of the Strong National Museum of Play, and James from the South Side wanted to get in on the action. So, what's up, James? Uh, yes, I had I I had I've had had uh, line mail trains and uh, Pico trains. Now I know. Okay, I had a question. I know. Okay, I could at first I didn't hear much about line mail trains at least in recent years. I'm assuming this, uh, but from what I've, I've noticed. They're still around. I guess you just got to look a lot harder for it on websites for it. Well, are Lionel Trades still made, Chris? They are. They have gone through a number of different hands over the years, but they were so tremendous, especially in the 1950s 
and uh, with the slogan, makes a man feel like a boy and a boy feel like a man. Ah, that's great. All right, good memories. Thanks, James. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, along the same lines, people had all sorts of exotic uh, tracks and things like that, but later, slot cars. You'd see some people who had quite the slot car collection. I'm sure you have a few. We have a few, and I understand slot cars are undergoing a big resurgence these days, and it's a hot birthday destination when there were such things as birthday destinations. Oh, wow. Probably the paint. No, all right. Now, getting back to uh, the list here, I can't, uh, can't ignore uh, board games because they are so huge. And like I say, I lived in Utah for a while, and because of Family Fun Night, I've never seen so many board games that uh, sold. has to be the board game capital of the world. But currently, what's the biggest selling board game? You know, there are definitely the best-selling American game for tabletop play is still Monopoly. It is the one that blows the rest out of the water, and the Strong Museum is thrilled to have the first Monopoly board made by Charles Darrow, the man who gave us Marvin Gardens and all those kinds of great details. Yeah, Atlantic City comes to life. Uh, I know I had uh, a Monopoly game when I was young, and I guess I show my age because I didn't realize they ever had metal pieces. The ones we got had wood. And so <laughs> I, guess, uh, I guess that was the World War II era. But, uh, but yeah, I remember those wood pieces. And it's, it's fascinating. The other game, and I'm, I'm running out of time real quickly, so I'll hog you and say, I mentioned this on the air last night, actually. I have one toy left from being a young kid, and it was made by Brio, and it's a labyrinth. And I just love this thing. And I understand Labyrinth is still around, maybe not in the same configuration exactly, but I'm sure you've got a few. We have a nice Brio collection, and they were such durable toys. No wonder they lasted over the years. Oh, yeah. I had to replace the strings myself, but other than that, uh, this thing is, uh, you know, older than dirt and still looks great. It's on top of a reel-to-reel recorder behind me. <laughs> so this is uh, this is phenomenal. This is a reason to come to, uh, to Rochester. Uh, the Strong National Museum of Play and Chris Bench, thanks for joining us. It's such a pleasure, Rally. Anytime you want to talk toys, I am at your, your service. Well, good, because I will be calling back. We hardly touched the, uh, 2000, the 2020 inductees, and we've got every year to go on. So this will be fun. Thanks, Chris. Okay, looking forward to it. All right.